I want to take a few moments first of all to thank all of you who prayed for me during my two weeks that I was away in Central Asia, or at least ministering to Central Asian countries. Uh, I spent four very profitable days with Ken and Claire Bradley who work in a limited access nation and you know which country they work in. I had the privilege of ministering to their teams on two days, uh, many, many conversations with them and praying together as well in, the, in that prayer room that Ken has built in the basement of his ProLink office as well. So they were all very significant high points along the way. And then flew to a city on the southern part of that country, uh, ministering to about 375 workers, over 200 of whom were Christian workers from the Central Asian countries, from uh, Azerbaijan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Tatarstan, and Pakistan as well. And these are all the places where people work in very, very difficult situations. It was such an incredible honor and privilege to be able to share God's word with them. As most of you know, I left here quite hampered with a bad cough and as, as well as laryngitis. And I just thank God for so many of you who prayed for me. Uh, Sham was telling me regularly how you would ask about how I was doing. Claire and Ken prayed for me and there was an online team that prayed, uh, or on-site team that prayed throughout as well. I, I didn't experience healing, but he gave me sufficient strength to do each one of the nine or ten opportunities that I, that I had to do that work. And so I'm so grateful, Father, for that. And while you were here, therefore, being ministered to in our annual missions conference, you were also participating in that call by sending me uh, to another part of the world and then praying for me as well. I just appreciate that so much. I'd love to be back here. Thank you for leading us, Michelle. And I would never have missed those testimonies for anything. It just restores our power in the beauty and the love of Jesus to transform people's lives. That's what we want, right? We want transformation and we, that's what brings us joy. I pray you have expectation that Jesus will meet you today, all of us. So where do we go after missions conference? We're in Lent. It's a season of the year where the church has traditionally taken time, more than normal time, to focus on the journey of Jesus towards the cross as his suffering and his passion intensifies. So I want to take a chapter, John chapter 15, from which the scriptures were read, both this week and next week. This is the last private conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. His public ministry ends in John chapter 12, after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Instead of producing faith, it sealed his death warrant. And from this time on, Jesus withdraws into privacy. And in John 13, in preparation for the institution of the Lord's Supper, he washes his disciples' feet. John says to show them the full extent of his love. In the 14th chapter, his disciples are all anxious because he's talking about leaving. And so he says, don't worry, I'm going to send you the comfort of the Holy Spirit who will comfort you. I will not leave you as orphans, which is a promise of the spirit of adoption, who will give us a witness that we are children of God. And then in the 15th chapter, as he's on his way to Gethsemane with them, in an after-dinner conversation, we pick up the story. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. The metaphor of the vineyard was extremely common in scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, it represented Israel, the people of God. And God, the vine dresser, expected fruit from them. And that fruit was twofold. Uh, the, the power of uh, character displayed by their commitment to the law of God and the beauty of their lives and their life of worship attracting the nations around them. <clears throat> The, vi the vineyard metaphor also recurs throughout the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are called the synoptic Gospels because they all look, look at Jesus through roughly the same lens. The metaphor still refers largely to Israel. And in most of the cases, Israel is either partly or largely unfruitful and has failed in God's, uh, accomplishing God's purposes. All of a sudden in John's Gospel, 
something changes. This is the last of his I am statements. And he says, I am the vine. Not Israel, not the community of Israel. But he, Jesus himself, is the vine. What then happened to Israel, the people of God? They're no longer automatically guaranteed that status. It sets up a key question for you and me. Which is why this passage is so relevant to us. Who are the people of God? It's a question that is very pertinent today when south of the border, we've got millions of people who call themselves evangelicals, throwing their entire weight between a godless, arrogant man who does not know how to respect other people, who's crude and vulgar, and who has stood for years, decades, for causes that are completely contrary to the gospel. It just precipitates the question, who then are the people of God? And the answer has nothing to do with your political affiliation. This is not a plug for Republicans or Democrats or Liberals or NDP or Greenpeace or whatever. The answer to the question, who is the people of God, will be determined by one thing and one thing alone. Jesus continues. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That may bear more fruit. According to Jesus, who is the vine? Israel in the Old Testament and you and I today are branches. And there are two kinds of branches. There are branches that bear fruit and there are branches that do not bear fruit. So the true people of God, very simply, are people who bear fruit by virtue of an organic living connection with Jesus the vine. Everybody else, whether or not they have some appearance of being connected to the vine, if they are not bearing fruit, there is no organic connection. And if there is no organic connection, they are not part of the people of God. And the two tasks of the vine dresser, according to Jesus, is to remove the branches that are not bearing fruit, and, and the metaphor to let more light in to the ones that are, and to prune those branches that are bearing fruit, so they will bear even more fruit. This metaphor also drives home one thing very clearly to me, and you might be surprised. Our focus is not to be on fruit bearing. According to this metaphor, our focus is to be on maintaining the organic connection with the vine. <laughs> you cannot produce fruit without that connection. So what's primary, what's secondary? Fruit bearing is a consequence. Connected organically to the life-giving vine is the foundation of the principle. Jesus continues that. Verses 4 to 7. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I want you to feel the force of that verse that I've highlighted. Apart from me, I can do nothing. In this entire enterprise of bearing fruit through union with Jesus, everything we do depends upon there's a radical dependence upon this organic connection with Jesus. Without that connection, there will be no fruit no matter how hard we try. With that connection, there will be fruit that comes naturally. That's why I said the critical task before us is to maintain that organic connection. By the way, the link to prayer in verse 7 fits this theme because if we really believe this verse that apart from him we can do nothing, that we're going to be asking him all the time to do things. 
Which means prayer becomes a natural expression. It is, that is why it is the most concrete expression of the fact that we actually believe that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Now in verse 8, he comes back full circle to the same question. Who are my people? By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He's coming at it from a slightly different angle. still the same question. This time it's not branches. This time who is my disciple? And the answer is exactly the same. Those who bear fruit. And the reason why it is connected to the glory of the Father is very easy. Because if I am bearing fruit, and that fruit only comes by virtue of an organic connection with Jesus, who gets the glory? Not me, but the one who is the source of that life. So by bearing fruit through a connection with Jesus, we always glorify Jesus. Secondly, because we do bear fruit, we begin to fulfill God's intentions. That people around us are attracted to us because of the fruit. And then we get to tell them, but it isn't me, it's Jesus. That's what the testimonies were all about today. And so once again, God gets the glory. So now we're ready to summarize all this in one statement. True disciples glorify God by bearing fruit through a vital connection with the vine. Can you say that with me? True disciples glorify God by bearing fruit through a vital connection with Jesus. One more time. True disciples glorify God by bearing fruit through a vital connection with Jesus. This, this is the message, really, in a nutshell. Now Jesus, throughout this text, talks about this organic connection in words like remain and abide. We remain in Him, He remains in us. We abide in Him, He abides in us. So it becomes absolutely crucial for us to get a handle on how this abiding and dwelling takes place. Because it is that way we remain connected to the vine, we bear fruit, we dem- demonstrate to the world that we are disciples, and we bring glory to God. So that's what I want to talk about for the rest of this message. Abide. In this text, Jesus talks about three ways in which we can abide with Him. There's actually a fourth one, we'll get to that later, maybe next week. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. One of the ways in which this mutual abiding takes place is by Jesus' words abiding within us. Life in Christ comes through his word. Earlier on in John's gospel in chapter 663 he said, It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh, meaning our own strength, is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus' words touch the spirit, quicken the spirit, which is that central reality of ours that spills over into everything in our life. Mind, will and emotion and body. And it imparts eternal life to us. Which is why a few verses later, Peter says... Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So first and foremost, we abide in Christ and us in Him through His word. Now, this, is in, this involves much more than memorization. I'm thankful for all you quizzers who are here today. Thank you for all the effort that you put in in memorizing. But it isn't enough. It's crucial, but it isn't enough. It by itself is not abiding. The, the word abide carries the sense of... By the way, the reason we say that is the devil knew scripture very well. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness with quotes from Deuteronomy, I don't think he had a Bible in his back pocket. He just knew it. So automatic memorization, while important, is not enough. Abiding has a sense of dwelling. <coughs> we have, tomorrow morning, <coughs> a couple that we got to meet in Jordan who work in that Middle East, in that war-torn country, are going to come visit us for a day or two. So Shams busy getting the house ready. So they will feel at home. They abide in our home for a couple of days. We move things around. We create space. That's what we're talking about. 
The word finds a home in our hearts. We move things out of the way to create space for that word to take up room within our heart. That's what it is. And how do we do that? I want to suggest three ways. Each of them is a full sermon in itself. But today we're just trying to get a big picture to get some ideas of how this works. First and foremost, we abide through immersion. Jesus said this in John 15, a few verses later. All that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. So, one of the ways in which we abide in God's, Jesus' words, is to expose ourselves to all of it. That we are fine in the Gospels, which is why reading the Gospels is so important. But while primarily they refer to the words of Jesus, secondarily they refer to all of Scripture. Because you remember on that first Easter Sunday morning when Jesus joined himself to these two disciples, when he confronted them, finally he said, he began with Moses and walked all the way through the scriptures, revealing to them what they spoke about him. So in a secondary sense, all of scripture is a revelation of Jesus. So, immersion is exposure to all of God's word, but especially to Jesus' words, by, by reading through larger portions of it. It's more a breath thing for us. It's a mental washing. I love reading for one reason, this, this kind of immersion I'm talking about. I don't study when I read. I just let it wash through my mind. I need a counter to the million voices that I hear saying other things every day. Radio, television, newspaper, office cooler conversations, everything. The second way in which we, Christ's word abides with us is meditation. Now in meditation we go narrower and deeper. It's not large portions of scripture, it's one little section. Bill Hybels who is a pastor of Willow Creek Church practices something called saturation meditation. He will choose one, path, one chapter for a year. And the year he spoke about this, he had chosen Romans chapter 12. And he spends the entire year meditating on that one chapter. Going much, much deeper. Here we are not talking about breadth, but we are talking about depth. Another way in which you can meditate, you go deeper, is choose a single verse of scripture. Not even a chapter. One time I heard Peter Scazzaro. Uh, author of the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Movement, uh, do this at the end of a sermon. He took one line from the Lord's uh, prayer, uh, from the, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd one. 23rd Psalm. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And he read it at the end, six times, with an emphasis differently. He began by reading this way. He said, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He makes me 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 lie down in green pastures. I must say by the end of that minute, I knew that verse a lot, lot better. It's called Lexio Divina. Divine reading. That's another way in which you can meditate. A third way is by harnessing our imagination in terms of meditation. The Bible is full of images. Most of it is in the form of apocalyptic history and prophecy. The didactic teaching portions of the, of the Bible are fairly small. Most of it is addressed to our imagination. And when we, we can choose an image. As I said, each one of these is a full sermon. I wish I could go off on my tangents now. But I'm not going to. Maybe a little bit more next week. But these days, those of you who have been reading Pastor Allen's devotionals, that's what he's been doing. He's been meditating on the image of Jesus in Revelation 1. And the images contained in the letters that Jesus wrote. And I am just relishing all over again that privilege of that kind of insight. 
So those are some ways in which we can go from immersion is widespread exposure, just the washing of your mind with the word. Meditation is going deeper. A chapter, a verse, Lexio Divina, focusing on images. And then thirdly, of course, in study. Now, the first two we kind of do by ourselves. In study, we go deeper. I'm using Pastor Allen's book. In study, we bring other people. We bring commentaries. We bring uh, Beth Moore studies. We bring small group members. We study in triads. One-on-one mentoring. Me teaching you. These are all various ways in which we go even deeper. Now, I must say something. I'm aware of the fact that some of us, myself for example, and many of you that I know, are wired in such a way that this comes very naturally. You're analytically oriented, you love digging deep, taking things apart. But listen, most of us are not like that. And you should not be discounting this day, this isn't for me. That's not true. The Bible tells us, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, This wisdom from God that is in the word of God is not understood by nature. But these are spiritual words written to spiritual people who have the mind of Christ. In other words, every single Christian. The Holy Spirit can take the word of God and illumine it and give you the mind of Christ. A few weeks ago, Sham and I were visited by someone in this congregation, uh, for all practical purposes, a single mother, who has known a lot of difficulty in her life. She wanted to come and share some things with us, and she asked us to set aside a good block of time, which we did. And somewhere in there, she shared this gem about how she does this. She didn't know I was going to be preaching all this. She said, Sunday morning, I listened to your sermon, Pastor Sundar. Monday night I gather my family together and we listen to the sermon together and we talk about it. Wednesday night I go to my small group and we use the study guide and we go even deeper. Do you see how these elements are all? This is exposure. This is the word abiding. No wonder she's being transformed. The word that is abiding within. Anyway, three suggestions on how this might happen. Immersion in, in the large portion of all that Jesus has taught us. Meditation on smaller portions in any one of the ways that I've suggested. And then study where we draw upon the wisdom of others and together go deep. So one, some of the ways in which we abide in Christ through his word. You know this abiding in prayer as well. A second way in which we abide and dwell. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus forges a crucial connection here between his words abiding within us and what shapes our prayers. This is so crucial. I'm going to devote the entire message next week to talk about this. Because this is so crucial, so foundational. But for this morning again, I just simply want to give you an idea of how this might work. Since we are taking a bird's eye view of this passage. Any words of Jesus that find their home within us can become fuel for our prayers. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about this very passage. The very words that Jesus is speaking in John 15 can function in this way. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. Every branch in me does bear fruit. Well, I can, I I want to immediately start praying. Lord... You just told me that apart from you, I can do nothing. Actually, I don't even know how to abide in you. I can't do any of these things that I heard about abiding in the vine. You know, that's how radical this is. If apart from him, we can do nothing, we cannot even abide in him apart from him. Which means, you see how prayer becomes so foundational. So go to him. Plead with him. Ask, confess your fruitlessness. Confess your struggles in not abiding. And ask him to graft you back into the vine. Romans chapter 11 says, God is able to graft broken branches back into the vine. (laughs) 
Now, that's in set prayer. But it's not the only way in which we can abide in prayer. I was uh, thinking of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an Old Testament character. At the time, Persia, the Persian Empire was the dominant empire. And he was high up in the, in the, he was a cupbearer to the king. But Nehemiah had a passion for his own people. The walls of Jerusalem were broken. The gates were burnt down. And God put a call upon this man's heart to go back there. Make the difficult journey. So Nehemiah prays. And he prays for four months. Long, long prayer. Then when he starts doing the work which took 52 days. As you read that you will find he shoots up one sentence prayers all the time. Telegraphic prayer. Months of prayer and moments of prayer came together. And a beautiful illustration of this handed to me. I meet with the staff one-on-one regularly for spiritual mentoring. And Pastor Joel and I had our first meeting together. And I have his permission, not only his permission, but his exhortation to share this. I asked him to come and talk. He said, no, just do it as part of the sermon. And this is what he shared. He said, it's very challenging. it was very challenging for me to get into God's word. Because I had no desire to read. And I had no desire to set aside any time to pray. <clears throat> so he wasn't going to be able to put this into practice. He had no desire. He said, but whenever I prayed, I did pray for the desire itself. So I asked God to kindle that desire within me. And then he did something very important. He didn't twiddle his thumbs waiting around for this magical desire to show up. He said, I started doing something much simpler. During the course of the day, anytime I changed from one activity to another, I simply paused and asked God to bless that activity. And he said, slowly... During my day, I began to hear God. Just a little instruction here, a little instruction there. And he said it came to a memorable experience when after praying for a particular staff member, he said God really impressed on my heart to share with him what God had taught me about that. And when I shared that with him, he affirmed immediately the relevance of that and he said I felt God's presence at that moment. He said this began to happen more and more. Small directives from God that were confirmed and soaked in his presence. And I absolutely loved this sentence. He said, I soon found myself completely addicted to his presence. You want an addiction, folks? That's it. And we talked again and brought tears to both our eyes again. What is prayer all about? Some, some dull devotions that Christians are supposed to do and Sundar always keeps talking about it. Oh, for crying out loud, it's about addiction to his presence. It's addiction to his presence. Many times I go into his presence wishing I didn't have to do it. I never come out of it wishing I had. And then, so God had answered his prayer. He had kindled the desire for the desire. And now times of set prayer have become a part of his life as well. Listen, anybody can do this, right? Anybody can do it. Doctors, lawyers, engineers, housewives, garbage collectors, street cleaners. Anyone. Whenever there's a change in your activity for that day, stop and abide in Jesus. Ask him to come. Moments of prayer and months of prayer begin to fuse. More of that next week on this particular thing. Thirdly, we're called to abide in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now those of you who were here at Solemn Assembly will remember that this was a major theme. You may remember Sam on Monday, Monday you came and Pastor Sam said, can I just share something? And he, and he reminded us of the crucial importance of knowing God's love as a starting point for everything. And then on the Friday night at Solemn Assembly in a time of sharing, many people reminded us that God loves us, God has pleasure in us. And then Pastor Chris asked, how many of you struggle with experiencing God's love? You remember? Hundreds of you stood up. 
So evidently we need some help in abiding in God's love. So let me give you two ways that have recently come to my attention. Sometime I was talking with an individual who was attempting to put meaningful prayer into place and, and wasn't working. He said, I even tried your 40 minute plan. It just left me more frustrated. That's okay. Helps some people, doesn't help others. And he said, until suddenly, he said, the only thing that worked for me was to just completely silence my mind for 20 minutes. For 20 minutes, just, and whenever my thoughts wandered, just bring it back to one and only one thing, God's love, God's love. And he said, my hope is that as I experience God's love more, I will love God back and I will love my wife and my children and the world and the church. So that's one kind of prayer. It's called centering prayer. By the way, it also happens to be one of our core values. We, we've repeated our purpose statement. Well, you all should know it. But we haven't talked about our core values. We didn't change those. You know what our very first core value is? We live in response to God's love. We live in response to God's love. And this kind of centering prayer, we just focus on that one truth. Maybe away for many of you. Now, I'm wired very differently from this person. I try centering prayer, I get the frustration that he gets when he tries something else. Because I, I said, Lord, I know a different way to connect with you and I can hardly wait to get there. This thing is just frustrating for me. So, how do I experience, attempt to experience God's love? I've been reading a book by Tim Keller called, uh, just on prayer. And Keller talks about abiding in God's love by reminding us of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, especially this portion. May Christ dwell in your heart through faith, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God, Christ that surpasses knowledge. And in his book, he gives some practical ideas of what length, breadth, height and I know uh, mathematicians, I know we only have three dimensions, it's okay. But this is, this is imagination, okay? So we're going on four dimensions today. Stay with me. And so what I did when I was in Antalya this past week, uh, I decided to do that one day to learn to abide in Christ's love. And so I trace the significance of each one of these, uh, and I'm going to share them with you. And this is thanks to my wife. She told me last night that I should have said one more thing at this point, and that is to say, you can do this too. In fact, I would encourage you to do this. First of all, I thought of the length, length of his love. I'm sorry, breadth, the breadth. He came all the way to India to find me. In the 1960s, Hindi-speaking North India was a practically unreached people group. And yet God touched the heart of a Canadian missionary here named John Tate. First of all, he had to heal him of a serious lung disease. Then he had no money to take the boat to come to Bombay. And God touched the heart of a woman who had been widowed with five children. And she came to him after listening to him speak for just two minutes. And said, God will take care of my children. Here's my life savings. You go to India. Does she ever know what happened to Ravi and to me? One day she's going to find out. Anyway, and he came all the way there. And he and the Youth for Christ director in New Delhi, India, said, we need to find a way to reach out to the English-speaking subculture in New Delhi. That's me. There's the, love of, love, there's the breath of God's love for me. They would send somebody from here all the way there in that manner, which I didn't find out. And by the way, this is a, we have a little bit more time in this service, so let me add this story as well. We discovered later on that there were two ladies uh, who had been praying for John and one of his colleagues. In 1982, Sham and I went to Calgary and we met Lady Hutchinson and Lady Doyle, 93 years old, whose prayers had said, this is the length, breadth of God's love for me. How much does he love you? Rehearse your salvation. And then I talked about the depth. As I've been a Christian for 52 years, I've attempted to grow in grace and in holiness. 
my own life, but I've discovered two things. Even as my own personal life has been getting holier and more obedient, I've discovered that I've become more aware of how holy God is and how sinful I really am. And so that gap gets larger and larger. There have been sins of commission in my life. They're getting fewer. But there are many sins of omission. Things that I don't do that I should do. And some of them break my heart. I'll tell you this. I've never ever been deep that his love has not been deeper. There is no place where the cross cannot go. And how many times have I cried out to Jesus my high priest. (laughs) And he has forgiven me. Grace to help and mercy and restores me back to ministry. That's the depth of his love. Now the length, length of his love. For 52 years, he has lavished his love upon me. My family that loves me. This family, this church family that loves me all the time. Nobody deserves that kind of love. Especially when I heard of other people who haven't experienced that. But it's his, his pleasure to do it, right? And I just receive it. And then many friends who encourage and strengthen me just when I need it. And then he gives me a teaching ministry and takes me all over the world. And even in those places, you can get down. I get lonely when I'm away from Sham. And one time I was this evening, and I'm wondering, because this thing hadn't gone completely, and each day I had to depend on him, which was, which was wonderful, given that I was preaching the sermon. <clears throat> There's a lady that I didn't know about. She wasn't from Central Asia. She was from somewhere in the U.S., a deep southern accent. But interested in that area. She came to me and she said, I just want you to know that your teaching is like pebbles being dropped in a pond. They are creating waves that are penetrating through this whole audience. I started crying. How did she know? I needed to be encouraged at that time. There's the length of his love. How long has he loved you? How deep has he loved you? How broad is his love? And then finally the height. One day faith will become sight then all doubt will disappear. And I will know, in a way that I've never known before, that I am the object of his love and his delight. So are you. So those are some ways, one, two very different ways of people experiencing the love of God. It's an exercise I'm planning to do regularly now. To abide in his love. Anyway, let's step back. What have we learned so far? We've learned that true disciples glorify God by bearing fruit through a vital connection with Jesus. We've learned that this connection is called abiding. We abide in him as his words abide in us through immersion, meditation, and imagination. We abide in him in prayer that is shaped in the word, both, both uh, set prayer times and these moment-by-moment prayer times. And we abide in his love, whether by centering prayer, which is one end of the spectrum, or this kind of reflection on God's love, which is the other end of the spectrum. Now, the supreme motivation for all this, the promise that makes it worthwhile. For in verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's what's at stake. This isn't attempting to please some angry God by putting in devotions for five minutes a day. This is about experiencing His love for us, and His joy that comes as a gift from Him. I want to finish with one more observation. On that final night of solemn assembly, we were reminded about God's love for us and how Barb Manchester traced that pattern. It's in your uh, rack reporter. 
that we are called to be a holy orchard bearing fruit this year. And then a lady by the name of Elaine Ho, who doesn't come to our congregation, she's a part of Intercessors Canada, and Sham knows her well, and Peter and Rebecca Cho know her well too. Elaine came for two nights, because she heard we were doing repentance spring. She came on the Tuesday, then she came on Friday, and then she said something. She affirmed that God is pleased with us, God loves us, and then she said this fruit bearing needs to take place inside the homes as well. This organic union with Jesus bearing fruit needs to be a domestic enterprise. I want to just share with you a personal experience that John Piper shared. He said this. He said, December 21st for our 40th wedding anniversary. We went away for a couple of days. During that time we read and prayed over Psalm 40 and Isaiah 40. We talked about the difficulties of the year gone by. We pondered how easy it is to get discouraged with painful circumstances. Every couple knows that, right? We recall lunch times when we rehearsed a dozen things that were discouraging in our lives. Any one of us can do that easily. And it, is, and it became clear to us that what we need to do is to stop letting the voice of negative circumstances dominate our conversations. Yes, you have to be realistic. The painful things are really there. But we realize that the word of God, the promise of God, the works of God, the thoughts of God, the person of God, that voice was not being spoken into those moments. There may have been devotions in the morning, there may have been devotions in the evening, but at that moment when these discouraging things were being talked about, God's word was silent. That was mainly my fault, it's a husband's role to lead with the word of God. So we lingered over Psalm 40, verse 5, and decided to make it a year-long marriage verse in 2009. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. You will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. We are memorizing it and we aim to make it the banner that flies over our Monday lunch dates and our conversation. God's wondrous deeds and his countless thoughts towards us. We will proclaim and tell of them. To the, and this is the end of his message. He says, to that end I rededicate myself to memorizing the wondrous deeds and the thoughts of God towards us. Pray for us and we will pray for you. And may Christ make his word dwell richly in us this year. That's what it might look like. By the way, the sermon was finished at this point on Saturday, on Friday night. Saturday morning, God did something that I was not prepared for. He reminded me, he said, so look at the date again. They made this decision for 2009. Piper didn't know on December what 2009 was going to hold for him. He put it on his website so I can talk about it. Uh, this is a man who has 360,000 followers on Twitter. He is not a private person anymore. Hundreds and thousands of people follow his sermons, maybe tens of thousands. He humbled himself on his website and he said about how God had been convicting him about his sin in his marriage. And with the blessing of his elders, he took nine months off. He went and got professional counseling. And he worked in his marriage and he said, this is what God showed me. The works that God is doing in my own soul and the work he's doing in our marriage are almost indistinguishable. Because all sin is sooner or later relational. I would name my most... Remember the man who's doing this to 300,000 followers, a leader in the Christian church, a sought after speaker everywhere. I would name my most besetting and I hope weakening sins as selfishness, self-pity, anger, quickness to blame, and sullenness. And all of these have been most often manifested home more than anywhere else. Did he know when he and his wife decided to start letting abiding in the word in their marriage that this is what was in store? 
And today the man, ten years later, is at its peaks. A marriage that is sweeter than before, power and anointing in the pulpit. Joy is what's at stake. So let's do it in our homes as well. As we were praying in the uh, green room before, in the light of the text before us as well, just felt a very strong impression that we needed to first focus the benediction. And all of our young people have been memorizing the scriptures because they need to go beyond that. So I'm going to have everybody who is here who have been involved in the quiz meet this weekend or memorizing scripture, just make your way to the front here. Come on up as quickly as you can. I just want to bless you guys. Come. Yeah, and even if you were not participating here, but you have been memorizing scripture by yourself, just make your way to the front. That's fine. Yeah, just jam them right up in the front. Come on up. I'd like to have you around here. You go on both sides if you want. Well, the balcony is empty. <laughs> That's great. Do you guys like the service tonight? Today? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? This is an absolutely unbelievable privilege for us as a church. To host you like this and to see so many young people just giving themselves to memorizing the word. But, but I just really want to bless you to go much, much deeper with this. So just receive this blessing. You know, a blessing is different than a prayer. I could pray for you, and I will, but a blessing... I'm not speaking to God. I'm actually speaking to you. <clears throat> and the word benediction comes from two Latin words. Bene means good and diction means word. So benediction is a good word. And one of the great privileges pastors have is to speak those good words. Because some of you, I don't know your background. Some of you may not have grown up with many good words being spoken to you <clears throat> or about you. Well, God's words have power to neutralize bad words. <laughs> and so if you're, if you're in that group, and you need good words, you just receive that, alright? May the Spirit of God, who inspired the scriptures that you are memorizing, light a flame in your heart. Like the burning bush that burned without consuming the bush and took over Moses that day. May this word that is in your heart invite you to holy ground to recognize burning bushes. And when he does, may you do what Moses did, turn aside to go closer to look at the bush. And may that fire be lit within you that no longer needs you as fuel. And may you burn brightly for Jesus, fueled by these words and many, many more of them. May Jesus abide in you. May that organic connection with Jesus be fused into you. May it never be broken. And may your fruit bring glory to God, joy to you, and a blessing to the nations of the world. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.